Great to see such an enormous crowd here tonight. Let me introduce myself. My name is Sue Windybank. I convene the China and Free Societies Project at the Centre for Independent Studies. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight to this event. Now, for those of you that don't know about the Centre for Independent Studies, CIS is a public policy research organisation. We're based in Sydney and we're committed to promoting the liberal uh, classical liberal principles. Uh, so that includes free choice, individual freedom, open, and I would also add civil exchange of ideas, and there will be plenty of that tonight. Um, limited democratic government under the rule of law, education opportunities, and market-based reform. We support evidence-based policies to help lift the standards of all Australians we're particularly focused on Indigenous disadvantage in remote communities. Now, CIS has also been a very strong supporter of free trade and the China trade relationship, as well as the US alliance, which has been and continues to be the centrepiece of Australian foreign policy. And on Sunday, we had the pleasure of hosting the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, at the New South Wales State Library. That was a lively event, but tonight is going to be even livelier. <laughs> now, we all know that Australia is a middle power and that we benefit from the status quo in the region. We want to keep enjoying the best of both worlds. We want to have unconstrained trade with China and we want to shelter under the security umbrella of the United States. Now, that situation has served this nation very well for nearly a quarter of a century. So, it stands to reason that anything that disturbs that regional equilibrium is self-evidently not in our national interest. That's been, and I think it remains, the Canberra policy consensus. But can China rise peacefully? Well, both speakers this evening, Professor Hugh White from the ANU and Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, believe that as China's economic power grows, we'll convert that into military strength and Beijing will seek a strategic sphere of influence on which its future prosperity and stability depends. So therefore, a more intense strategic and economic competition between Washington and Beijing is inevitable. Indeed, if you think about this week's headlines, currency and trade tensions, Beijing's hardline approach to Hong Kong, you might think of them as, as just a harbinger of things to come. So the question is, what should Canberra do? Well, now for the debate. Now, in tonight's debate, each speaker will have 15 minutes to make their case. And let me introduce our first speaker. Hugh White is a professor of strategic studies and is probably known to many of you in this room at the ANU here in Canberra. He's also the author of the quarterly essay, Without America, Australia in the New Asia. He's a former Deputy Defence Secretary and his new book, How to Defend Australia, which is published by Black Inc., 
basically fleshes out the defence requirements for his Without America thesis. And you can buy that book in the lobby, as I've seen many of you doing um, this evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Hugh White. Well, thank you very much, Sue, for that introduction. Thanks, Tom, for CIS is organising this. Thanks, John. It's a great pleasure to appear on this platform with John Mearsheimer, a man whose work I've admired and learnt a great deal from over many, many years. And thank you all for coming. It's uh, great to see so many out on a cold Canberra night. So, Sue, I think, has set the scene for us very nicely. That mantra that we've heard so much about over the last 10 years or so, we don't have to choose between America and China, always depended for its credibility on whether Washington and Beijing agreed. And if Washington and Beijing decided, or if either of them decided that we did have to choose, then we had to choose. And last weekend, if we'd been any doubt before, last weekend, removed any doubt at all that at least from Washington's point of view, and I also say from Beijing's, we do have to choose. We do have to make some choices. And the choices we're talking about are very big ones. Because the US-China rivalry that we're seeing today, over which of them will be the primary power in the world's most dynamic region, is a very big strategic challenge indeed. It's the biggest challenge to Australia's strategic assumptions, I would argue, since the late 1930s, and that didn't end well. Now it is, I believe, an oversimplification to see the choices which that confronts us with in the terms in which, for example, uh, under relentless grilling from Tom Switzer on Sunday afternoon, the US Secretary of State characterised them as a choice between soya beans and security, a choice between the United States as our great ally and China as our great customer. It is true that there is a choice between prosperity and security in the way we manage this. But tonight I want to leave prosperity to one side. And I want to ask what is best for our security? What choices do we face in terms of how best to manage our security over the years and decades to come in the light of this rivalry between the US and China? Is it best for us just to support the United States in what appears to be its current policy of trying to contain China's challenge and restore the old US-led order which has served Australia so well? Or is it better for us not to support them and to try some other approach? I'll touch very briefly on what that other approach might be later. Now, just to be clear, this is not a conversation about what we'd like. If you ask me at least what I'd like, I'd like American primacy in Asia to last forever. But I but what we need to have a conversation about is not what we'd like, but what we should prudently expect. And I don't think we can prudently expect that supporting the United States in the policy that it currently appears to be pursuing is the best way for us to proceed. And there is two reasons why I think that. The first is that I don't believe the United States itself is committed to it, and therefore it won't work. The second is that even if the United States is committed to it, it won't work and it will lead to a disaster. Let me analyse those two, explain those, explore those two 
propositions in a little bit more detail. Why, would, why do I say the United States is not really committed to the policy of containing China and restoring the US-led order? Well, it's easy to assume it is, partly because they say so. That's what uh, Secretary Pompeo, for example, was saying over the weekend. But I do tend, as a point of methodology, to discount what, what countries and their leaders and their political representatives say and look more carefully at what they do. So a stronger reason as to why the United States should be committed to preserving its leadership in Asia is that it's always done so before. That the United States for a long time, a century you might say, uh, has, has always been committed to preserving its position as the leading power in East Asia and more broadly to resisting challenges posed by peer competitors successively through the 20th century. And that is true. 1917, 1941, the decades of the Cold War, the United States has been pretty consistent. But the fact that that's what the United States has done before is no guarantee that that's what it'll do in the future. And it seems to me in particular that the, in the case of the contest with China, there are two key differences. The first is that China is stronger than any of the peer competitors, would-be peer competitors that the United States has ever faced before. It's stronger as an economic power, in particular, and I do take an old-fashioned view that economic weight is the foundation of national power. That is not to say that China, that America isn't strong too, it's a very strong country, but China is stronger relative to the United States than any country has ever been since the United States first poked its nose out of the Western Hemisphere at the end of the 19th century. Its economy is far, far bigger, probably already now twice as big as the Soviet Union's was relative to America's at the height of the Cold War and is likely to grow much bigger still. We would make a real mistake to keep on underestimating China's power for the next few years as we have done so consistently for the last 25 years. We face this predicament today because we've underestimated China's power for so long. And I might say we've overestimated the United States. For too long we've taken it for granted that the United States is by definition the world's strongest state. By definition has the military power to do whatever it likes. What we've discovered repeatedly, but still don't seem to have learnt from, is that the United States, for all its strength and power and creativity and all the good things about it, is not the power we thought it was and the power we hoped it would be. And what that means is that the cost to the United States of preserving its leadership in Asia in the face of China's power and ambition to overtake it is going to be very high. It will be co comparable to and perhaps higher than the cost of preserving its position vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union during the Cold War because China is stronger. Now, the other side of the coin is that the imperatives to the United States are lower than, it, than, than they were in previous enterprises when it confronted um, peer competitors. And that's because in the past, when the United States has set out to defeat, for example, Wilhelmine Germany in 1917, or the Nazis and the Japanese in 1941, or the Soviets in 1948 and on onwards, they confronted in each of those episodes powers which had a real prospect of dominating the whole of the Eurasian landmass. And any country that dominates the whole of the Eurasian landmass is easily going to be strong enough to threaten the United States at home in the Western Hemisphere. That provided a very deep foundational reason why the, why the United States should be prepared to bear the burdens and pay the costs of confronting those very powerful states. 
But I think it's hard to argue that China has a prospect of doing that because although I am pretty bullish about China, I think the chances of China having the kind of preponderance that would allow it to dominate the other countries in Eurasia are very low. Therefore, the chance of it being able to dominate Eurasia and threaten the United States at home in the Western Hemisphere are very low. And therefore, the chance of the United States having the will, the motive, the purpose to pay those higher costs and risks in order to confront China in East Asia to prevent China becoming the primary power in East Asia is pretty low. Because I just don't see why the United States should commit itself to those costs and risks. And moreover, there's no real sign that they are. There are people in Washington, including the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defence, who talk of a new Cold War or language like it. But I think they still underestimate China. I don't hear from them a clear understanding of how big that will be a clear articulation of a strategy that would deliver America a reasonable prospect of success in confronting China. No clear recognitions of how much that will cost and no clear statement of why the United States has to commit itself to paying those costs. And I haven't even mentioned Donald Trump. <laughs> but Trump is an important part of this, not because, or not just because of his own policies, but because of what his election tells us about the attitude not of the foreign policy elites in Washington DC but of American voters because in the end a national effort on the scale and cost and risk required to confront a country as powerful as China in its own hemisphere is not something that can be decided by a few people in think tanks up and down Massachusetts Avenue. It needs to be decided by the American people as a whole and what you see from the election of Donald Trump, what you see from the willingness of the Republican uh, establishment to go along with him and what you see on the Democrat side of politics as the Democrats try to redefine themselves in the Trump era is very little commitment, if any, to preserving the US leadership role upon which this whole model of American engagement in Asia depends. In the light of all this, Australians have to ask themselves how confident can we be that America today and in the decades to come will commit to the costs and risks of containing China. And what if I'm wrong? How sure can we be that they will succeed if, they, if I'm wrong and they do decide to commit? Because if I'm wrong, if America really is committed, then what we'll see is escalating strategic rivalry, further steps up the trend, the very sharply rising trend that we've seen in the last few months and years. Now, everyone in Washington and everyone in Australia, I guess, would hope that, that in the face of that, China would simply back off. But I think that underestimates China again. The balance of resolve favours China for the simple geographical reason that the contest we're talking about is one in East Asia. If the contest was in the Western Hemisphere, I wouldn't give China a chance. But in China's backyard, where the balance of resolves is so strong, strongly shaped by geography, I think the chances of China backing off before America does are very low. That means if America sticks to the, to the commitment, the chance of war goes up. It's quite high in this scenario. Over an issue like Taiwan, in a sense, what it doesn't really matter what the issue that starts it is, what's important is, is that the US and China will find themselves fighting a conflict whose essential driver is the question as to which of them is the primary power in Asia, a very old-fashioned conception of a hegemonic war. If that happens, America will not win easily. In fact, I think the chances are America will not win at all. It won't lose 
in a sense, the PLA is not going to march down the Constitution, the Constitution Avenue in the United States, but it, but it will not win. And in, and in failing to win, in failing to resolve, the old order in Asia will be destroyed anyway. Moreover, the chance of that conflict escalating to a nuclear conflict is quite high. And the chance of that becoming a full-scale nuclear exchange is quite high. So if, so if I'm wrong, if America is committed, that leads Asia and Australia directly to what looks to me like a very serious catastrophe. In neither case, whether America's committed or it isn't, are Australia's security interests served by supporting and encouraging current US policy. So will we anyway? I've just explained what we should do. What will we do? Well, I don't know, actually. It's, it's very easy for us to keep trying to slide along as we're doing at the moment without making a choice on this. Being actually systemically duplicitous, telling the United States that we are supporting them and telling the Chinese that we're not. That is Australia's policy today. I think whether we can resolve that, whether we can come out and actually say, no, we're not gonna go down this path the United States is, is, is talking about following is going to be hard. It's very easy to slide into supporting the United States through timidity and a lack of imagination. It's easy to say, we have no choice, as people keep on saying. That's simply wrong. We do have a choice. We do have a choice. We haven't yet made that choice yet. Uh, and the, but but what, it, what is notable to me is that Australian government so far, including the present government, have, not, have, have so far failed to endorse the American designation of China as a strategic rival. They haven't done so yet, not, I think, because of a kind of strategic argument I've just unfolded, but for the simpler reason, going back to Mr Pompeo, of fear of China's anger and what it would mean for our trade relationships. But I think what that shows is they're still hoping to muddle through. And I think this is true of both sides of politics. And that does remind me of the 1930s, because if you look at what Australia did as things darkened in the, in the late 1930s. Australia still, Australian political leaders recognised that the Singapore strategy, the continuing dependence on the United Kingdom to which we are so heavily committed was not working. But we simply couldn't imagine doing anything else. And so we slid into the fall of Singapore and the biggest catastrophe in our national history. So what should we do? Well, two possibilities. One is that we should go back to the United States and say, we don't think the policy you're working on at the moment is going to work. But we can encourage them to develop one that will. And it is possible to imagine a US policy which recognised China's growing power, which was sustainable at, an effort, at a level of effort the United States is prepared to commit. It would be a very different US role in Asia than one we've seen in the past but it would be much better for us than the, than the United States withdrawing, which seems to be the most likely alternative. I think there was a time, around about 2012, when Australia could have done that, could have gone out there and argued for that different model. And if you look, at, for example, at what Lee Shen Lung was talking about in his big speech in Singapore on the 1st of June this year, that was the kind of thing he was talking about. And we could, we could do that, and maybe we should. But I'm here to tell you, I think the time has passed. I think the chances of that succeeding is now very low. So what should we do instead? Prepare for how best we can manage our security if that fails. 
which means prepare to stand alone. Thank you very much. Thank you for those sobering scenarios, you. Uh, now to our second speaker, uh, John Mearsheimer is one of America's leading foreign policy thinkers. He's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and he's the author of the book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Now, at the end of the Cold War, or during the Cold War era, there were three big ideas that dominated debate. There was Francis Fukuyama's End of History, uh, there was The Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington, and then there was John Mearsheimer's Tragedy Thesis. He is also the author most recently of The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, which is all about the American policy of pursuing liberal hegemony and its failure. And that book is also available in the hotel lobby, and I, I see that sales have also been pretty swift on that book too. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Professor John Mearsheimer to come and address us. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Uh, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be up here, and it's a great pleasure to be debating you this evening. Uh, the question that's on the table is, um, what should uh, Australia's foreign policy be in light of the rise of China? Uh, and what I'm gonna tell you is what I think it should be, and as a non-Australian, I'm being a bit presumptuous here, but I'll tell you what I would suggest if I were an Australian. And I'm also gonna tell you what I think is gonna happen, right? Because I'm quite confident that what Australia should do, it will do. And the way I wanna proceed is I wanna first describe the uh, US-China competition and then I want to turn to talking about how Australia fits into that bigger picture, okay? So let me start by talking about Chinese foreign policy and what's happening in China. My basic assumption here is that China is gonna to continue to grow over time. Okay? It's very important to understand that that's an assumption, that China will continue to grow. And my argument is that it will turn that economic power into military power and it will try to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. To put it in slightly different terms, what China's gonna to wanna to do is be a regional hegemon, like the United States is in the Western Hemisphere. It's gonna to wanna to be much more powerful than all of its neighbors. What China's gonna to wanna to do and it's a smart thing from China's perspective, is maximize the power gap between it and Japan, it and India, it and Russia. You wanna be, as we used to say when I was a little boy in New York City, the biggest and baddest dude on the block. You wanna be really powerful. That's the first goal. The second goal, for China's perspective, is to push the Americans out of Asia. You know we Americans have what's called the Monroe Doctrine. We do not like the idea of other great powers from places like Asia or places like Europe coming into the Western Hemisphere. We want to dominate the Western Hemisphere by ourselves. My view is that China is going to want to dominate 
Asia, especially East Asia, and it's not going to want the United States on its doorstep. And I don't blame them at all. I think from China's point of view, this makes perfect sense. The best way to survive in the international system is to be a regional hegemon. So I think as China gets more and more powerful, it's going to push in that direction. Then the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the United States going to do? The United States is not going to let that happen. Or at least it's going to try not to let that happen. We're going to get right up in China's face, and we're going to tell them, you cannot be a regional hegemon. We're going to pivot to Asia, and we're going to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. The historical record on this issue is quite clear. You alluded to it in his comments. The United States went to great lengths to contain and then put four different potential peer competitors on the scrap heap of history in the 20th century. First, Imperial Germany. Second, Imperial Japan. Third, Nazi Germany. And four, the Soviet Union. We went out of our way. We went to great lengths. We paid a great price to make sure that none of those four countries dominated either Europe, Asia, or Eurasia. We do not tolerate peer competitors. So you can rest assured that as China attempts to dominate Asia, and mainly East Asia for starters, we will go to great lengths to prevent that from happening. And we will go to great lengths to organize a balancing coalition in this area of the world so that others are with us. Now, some people believe, and I think this is clear in use comments, that the United States is not up for the task. And there's sort of two arguments here. Uh, one is public opinion in the United States. We're tired of global leadership. Uh, and we won't be here. We're worn out. And then the second argument is we just don't have the wherewithal to do it. We're dealing with Godzilla, and there's no way the United States, the poor, pitiful United States, can deal with a power uh, as great as China. First, with regard to public opinion, there's no question the American public is worn out, tired of these what we call forever wars in places like the Middle East. That's true for sure. But the fact of the matter is, uh, even though the American public is worn out, we continue to fight those wars. And we still are operating all over the globe. And our commitments have actually increased since President Trump took over. And there's no evidence that we're leaving East Asia. In fact, if you look at our arms sales with Taiwan in our political relations with Taiwan these days, we're increasing the bonds between the United States and Taiwan, which is sure to infuriate the Chinese, but we just don't care. And if you look at the trade war, this is all an indication that the United States is getting up in China's face. We're not leaving. The American people is not worn, are not worn out. And furthermore, the forever wars are different than dealing with a peer competitor. And furthermore, you want to understand that in the United States, it's not just the military-industrial complex, the usual security experts who are interested in containing China. It's also a huge chunk of the business community, 
the high-tech industry. They're scared stiff of the Chinese. So the high-tech industry is marching arm in arm with the Pentagon. So in terms of public opinion, we'll be there. Now with regard to the question of whether or not we have the wherewithal to deal with China, I disagree with you on this one. The United States is the most powerful state on the planet at this point in time. Militarily, the Chinese would be crazy to pick a fight with us. We have the finest military out there. And economically, we have a dynamic economy. And if you look at per capita GNP, which I think is the principal indicator of economic power, we far outdistance the Chinese. It may be the case in 20 or 30 years that they outdistance us. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen over the next 20 or 30 years economically? Who knows how much the Chinese economy is going to grow relative to the American economy? But for the foreseeable future, we definitely have the wherewithal to play in this game. And furthermore, you want to remember we're going to have allies, and we're going to have some rich allies, and I believe one of them will be Australia. But countries like Japan, countries like India, they'll be with us. So it's not just the United States versus China. It's the United States and some powerful allies versus China, right? So I, I think that, you know, we're in the game. But let's assume that you is basically correct and China becomes much more powerful or China is much more powerful than the United States. You want to remember that during the Cold War, when the Soviet Union was at its height of power, it had only 30% of the wealth that the United States had. 30% of the wealth. And we still had an intense security competition from 1947 to 1989. So even if we have 50%, even 30% of the wealth of China will be there. We may ultimately lose, but most of you will be dead by the time that happens. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of balancing in the meantime. So the idea Right? The idea that we're not going to be there, you can forget that. Right? So we're going to have an intense security competition. Now just very quickly, a lot of people argue that there's a way out of this. We can have some sort of condominium, some sort of concert. The United States and China can get together and they can divide up East Asia and live happily ever after. This is not my understanding of how international politics works. International politics is a zero-sum game and the Chinese smartly, I want to be clear here, the Chinese smartly want to dominate Asia and they want the Americans out. We want to maintain the status quo. We do not want China to get any more powerful than it is today. Right? So there's not going to be a condominium. They're going to push hard and we're going to push hard. And we're going to go to great lengths to undermine them. It's not simply going to be containment. During the Cold War, the United States was involved in not only containment but rollback we will be engaged in rollback. And if you look at what President Trump is doing, that's not just containment, that's rollback. He's trying to roll back Chinese power. This is the way great powers behave. This is the way the United States behaves. You want to understand the United States is a ruthless great power. It does not tolerate peer competitors. Now, the question is, what does this all mean for Australia? Uh, you're in a quandary for sure. Everybody knows, everybody knows what the quandary is. And, and by the way, you're not the only country in East Asia that's in this quandary. You trade a lot with China, and that trade is very important for your prosperity. No question about that. Uh, and uh, 
security-wise, you really want to go with us. It makes just a lot more sense, right? Uh, and you understand that security is more important than prosperity because if you don't survive, you're not going to prosper. Survival is of the utmost importance because you can't pursue any other goals if you don't survive, right? So security has got to be number one. So you'll sacrifice prosperity for security, right? That's what will happen. That's why you'll be with us. Now, some people say there's an alternative. You can go with China, right? You have a choice here. You can go with China rather than the United States. There's two things I'll say about that. Number one, if you go with China, you want to understand you are our enemy. You are then deciding to become an enemy of the United States. Because again, we're talking about an intense security competition. You're either with us or against us. And if you're trading extensively with China and you're friendly with China, you're undermining the United States in this security competition. You're feeding the beast from our perspective. And that is not going to make us happy. And when we are not happy, you do not want to underestimate how nasty we can be. Right. Just ask Fidel Castro <laughs> to take this a step further. Let's assume that you side with China. Let's assume that you is correct and that the Chinese win. You help China win by siding with China. You think you're going to be happy in that world? You don't think they're going to interfere with your sovereignty? You ought to come over to the Western Hemisphere, go down to Central America, go down to South America, and ask those countries down there how they like living with the United States of America. We have a rich history of doing horrible things in South and Central America. Right? I'm glad from an American perspective that we're a hegemon, but I'll tell you, from the perspective of our neighbors, doesn't look like a happy story. And I'll tell you something, and you already see evidence of this. If China dominates this region, they're going to violate your sovereignty time after time, and it's not going to be a happy story. You're going to be with us. And then finally, there's this argument that you can sit on the sidelines, right? You can just sort of sit on the sidelines. Well, are you going to trade with the Chinese while you sit on the sidelines? Yes, you are. You're not going to just sit there and be an isolated country, fortress Australia. You're going to be trading. You're highly dependent on trade with China. That's just another way of saying you're not going to be neutral. You're going to be in bed with the Chinese. And again, that's not going to make the Americans happy. And if it does work out and China wins, you're going to regret it till the day you die. <laughs> and you, of course, know that. And that's why you'll side with the Americans. And I'm not saying that siding with the Americans is a day at the beach. It's not. But it's the least bad of two alternatives. And this is what international politics is often about, as you know. It's picking among bad alternatives. And siding with the Americans may be a bad alternative, but it's a heck of a lot worse to side with the Chinese or operate under the illusion that you can be neutral. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Right? So what's my bottom line here? My bottom line is that you should all hope that China does not continue to grow. You should hope it does not continue to grow, as should the Americans. But if it does continue to grow, you should, and I believe you will, side with Uncle Sugar. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Professor John Mishimer and Professor Hugh White.
What a debate. Now, my name is Tom Switzer. I'm from the uh, Centre for Independent Studies and thank you so much for being here. This is our first event in Canberra and judging by the crowd, I hope it's not our last. So thank you so much for being here. Um, let's talk first about these schools of thought. So you've got the, the Hugh White argument, which is saying that Americans are tired of the world, they're suffering from foreign policy fatigue, and that uh, in this increasingly intense uh, strategic and economic competition, Australia should be prepared to stand alone. The Mearsheimer school of thought, of course, is that the US will maintain serious economic and uh, military presence in the region, and Canberra must support Uncle Sam going forward. So there's two schools of thought, uh, simply put. Let's first talk about the, the big news of the day, Andrew Hastie, the Liberal MP. He wrote an op-ed today in the <coughs> Sydney Morning Herald, and the argument is that Australia is facing an unprecedented economic and national security test. He likened the world approach to containing China to the, quote, catastrophic failure to prevent the rise of Nazi Germany. Uh, Hugh White, uh, what do you make of Hastie's remarks? Well, he's come a bit late to the party in identifying the rise of China and the escalating strategic rivalry between the US and China as the biggest strategic challenge Australia faces. Some of us have been talking about that for a decade. <laughs> or more. <laughs> but welcome. <laughs> um, it's also good to see that he's noting that it's more important than the war on terror. Good, I'm glad he's caught up with that argument. Um, I don't think the appeasement metaphor, the Nazi Germany metaphor, is very helpful. Mm. Uh, historical metaphors can sometimes be valuable, but they can also be a little bit distorting. The Munich metaphor has been used in relation to almost every international strategic crisis since 1938 and often it's produced very dumb outcomes. Um, so I don't think that helps us very much. And I've got to say, from my reading of the op-ed, um, he didn't actually offer much in the way of advice as to what we should be doing about mm. it. Mm. So I don't think he actually moved okay. the debate. And we should stress, uh, so that we're catching up with the news of the day, the Chinese government has come out through its embassy to strongly deplore Hasey's comments, extreme, overblown and unwelcome. But John Mearsheimer, isn't there quite a bit of truth, leaving aside the Nazi analogy, a lot of truth to what Hastie's saying and what you're saying. Yeah, I just want to be clear to sort of build on what you said, that I think comparing China to Nazi Germany uh, was a foolish thing to do. China uh, is an authoritarian system and it has all sorts of aspects to its political system that somebody from a liberal democracy like me doesn't like at all. But China is not Nazi Germany and I think it was not helpful at all uh, as you said, uh, to make that analogy. I think what's good about the essay is that he points out that the policy of engagement which the West pursued, this includes Australians and especially Americans, towards China uh, over the course of the post-Cold War period effectively helped create this monster. The idea was that we were going to trade <coughs> extensively with China, make it rich, embed it in international institutions, and it was going to become, in Robert Zellick's words, a responsible stakeholder. Well, what we did was we helped accelerate the growth of China. It didn't become a responsible stakeholder, as people like me predicted, and instead it's going to do what I said it was going to do, which is try to dominate Asia. 
So it was a remarkably foolish policy. And we were, as Secretary of State Pompeo said, asleep at the switch mm -hmm. because we were pursuing this foolish policy. Now the question is, what do we do? And as you said, he's not too good on the solutions because as most people understand, there are no really terrific solutions here, as I said at the end of my comment. Okay, but Hasty, Mearsheimer and White are broadly in agreement on the threat that China poses. It's increasingly assertive on the world stage, especially in our own region. However, there, is a lot of there are a lot of scholars who believe that there are some serious weaknesses and limitations in China. I want to put to Hugh White the views of the distinguished American sinologist, Professor David Shambar from George Washington University. And he says, uh, when he talks about China's weaknesses, an economy saddled with a large and growing debt burden, endemic corruption, environmental concerns, you think about the air and the water pollution, very extreme. Demographic challenges, you know, John Howard's fond of saying that China is likely to grow old uh, before it grows rich. Uh, Hugh White, are you exaggerating China's capacities? Um, well, it's just worth bearing it. I've got a lot of time for David Shambar, old and dear friend, very fine China scholar, but it's just worth making the point that precisely that list of points that you read out have been said about China every single year mm. since it started growing. And as I said in my remarks earlier, we have consistently underestimated China's capacity to work through its problems and to keep the economy growing. And I think one of the reasons, as John said, one of the reasons why people have underestimated China as a strategic challenger and one of the reasons why I've taken a different view for a long time is that they've tended to convince themselves that somehow China would solve our problem for us by screwing it up. And they haven't so far. Well, that's not to say they won't. It's not to say they won't in future. All sorts of things go wrong in China. But I would just make this observation. The strategic weight, the economic weight that gives China the capacity to pose this very significant challenge to American leadership in Asia is not something that's predicated on its future development. Mm -hmm. It's already, today, far bigger relative to the United States than any country has ever been. Its, it's, PP, it's GDP measured in PP terms is already bigger than America. So even if China flatlines from here, which is very unlikely to do, mm -hmm. it will still be in a position to pose a more serious challenge to the United States than any of those previous peer competitors. Okay, but it's not just David Shambar. There's a sense of history here. Owen Harries, uh, head of policy planning in the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs uh, in the Fraser era, a uh, big figure in Canberra uh, four decades ago, uh, and former senior fellow here at CIS, he points out that in the past century, China has experienced the collapse of a traditional regime, warlordism, civil war, invasion, a famine that killed millions and mass terror in the form of the Cultural Revolution, and of course the dramatic socio-economic changes of the last four decades. John Mearsheimer, surely such a power is not wanting to be expansionist because it's got so many of these challenges at home and the history there. How would you respond to Owen Harris? No, the point is that China, when it was weak and it was suffering in the various ways that Tom just described, was victimized by <laughs> other great powers. The Chinese talk about the century of national humiliation. China was a very weak country, and when it was weak, it was victimized by the United States, the Japanese, and the European great powers. The lesson that the Chinese have taken from that, which I believe is the correct lesson, is that you want to be extremely powerful, and you don't want any rival great powers in your region of the world. And that's why I believe the Chinese, as they now begin to grow economically, 
are bent on establishing regional hegemony. You know, I'm an American. <coughs> the United States is the only regional hegemon in modern history. How many Americans do you think go to bed at night worrying about being attacked by Canada or Mexico? The answer is none. We have the ideal geostrategic situation. We have Canadians to the north, Mexicans to the south, fish to the east, and fish to the west. <laughs> That's what you want, right? The last thing you want to do is live next to other gorillas because they may invade you. And if those economic problems that you describe do manifest themselves, you can rest assured that your neighbors will take advantage of you. So I think it makes perfect sense for the Chinese to try to dominate Asia. But you want to remember, it makes perfect sense for us and for you to go to great lengths to not let that happen. Okay, so just assume you're both right, that China's rise will continue unabated, and that's <coughs> the consensus here. I'm an agnostic on that. I want to be clear. If, if, if it, yeah, that's right. So, but just assume you're right on this question, that China's rise will continue unabated. Uh, the consensus in Canberra, both major parties for some time now, believe that we can ride two horses simultaneously. We can continue to have the security umbrella with the Americans and to trade indefinitely. I want to ask you, because this wasn't spelt out in your talk, Hugh, why can't we just continue to have the best of both worlds in this increasingly intense strategic competition between Beijing and Washington? Well, because for exactly the reason that John explained, they're not going to let us. Mm. You know, the, the, the proposition, we don't have to choose between America and China, expresses a hope, not a reliable prediction. Whether or not we have to choose depends on them. If either of them says we have to choose, then we have to choose. And what we heard, what, what you heard from Pompeo over the weekend, mm -hmm. was the Americans saying, you have to choose. And what we heard from Beijing's reaction to what he'd had to say, mm. and for that matter, Beijing's reaction to Hastie's article today, was also, you have to choose. So the fact is, we are under increasing pressure to, um, from both sides to in, in, in America's case, to support them as they push back against China, in China's side, for us not to support the United States as they push back against China. So I think it's a very, it's going to be extremely difficult, impossible really, for us to satisfy both at once. And that, that's the reason why the old sort of, you know, ride both horses model is not going to work. Yeah, and on that note, John, uh, a choice is inevitable. That's an agreement here. But, um, you know, as Hugh points out, and he's not alone, the common view in business circles in this country that China buys double what our next largest customer, Japan, buys from us. The Chinese economy will grow much bigger than America's in coming years. I think Hugh points to federal treasury uh, predictions that say that China's economy will be 80% bigger than America's in 12 years. That's from the Commonwealth Treasury. Our China ties, this is a widely held view, saved us from the global financial crisis more than a decade, to a lot of Australians, the choice would seem clear, but your point is that security trumps trade. <laughs> Explain. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with the business community, uh, especially, which makes a lot of, a lot of money uh, dealing with the Chinese on the trade front, of course, they're going to want to maintain the status quo or maybe even lean towards China. Uh, but the point that I tried to make before is that in virtually every case I know in international history, when a state is forced to choose between prosperity and security, it opts for security 
because survival has to be the highest goal. This is, in a way, a tragic situation for Australia. I fully understand that Australia wants to maintain the status quo. To put it in slightly different terms that my mother would use, Australia wants its cake and eat it too. But the fact is, that world is going away. And as you said, you're going to be forced to make a choice. The United States is going to lean on you like you wouldn't believe, and the Chinese are going to lean on you like you wouldn't believe. And it has nothing to do with, you know, the United States per se, or China per se, or Australia per se. It's just the way international politics works. And great powers push hard on minor powers, or uh, middle-range powers, and that's what's happening here. And I believe that you'll opt uh, to side with the United States. And if you don't, as I said in my formal presentation, you should understand you'll be an enemy of the United States. And adding to John Mearsheimer's point, Hugh White, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety about China. I mean, there is a, you know, allegations have been made about Beijing's interference in our politics, uh, fears that uh, there have been pressures from Beijing uh, proxies undermining academic freedom. We keep hearing about these Confucius Institutes and whatnot. Here's a poll from the Lowy Institute a year ago. Three quarters of Australians say Canberra allows, quote, too much investment from China, especially in real estate and agriculture. So aren't those concerns absolutely legitimate and understandable? Oh, well, I don't put a lot of weight on people's anxiety about foreign investment because the, you go back through the... Through the, through the the, the, the records, people are being concerned about Japanese foreign investment and, for that matter, American foreign investment at different stages in our history. So I don't think that's the key. But I do think there's a, a genuine anxiety that as China's power grows, and it goes back to something that John said, living in an Asia dominated by China is not going to be a picnic. Mm. It's going to be very different <coughs> and very scary. Um, and so I think those concerns uh, are entirely legitimate. The question is, what do we do about it? And I think the default position and the position of some of those who've been prominent in raising these concerns um, has been that, well, that's just fine. We rely on the United States to deal with China for us. Mm. Now, my whole argument is I don't think that's going to work. I think we are going to end up most likely living in an Asia which is dominated, East Asia, which is dominated by China. And therefore, we have to make some tough decisions about how we protect our independence, our sovereignty, um, how we draw lines around how far that influence is going to go in a way that we can enforce by ourselves rather than having to rely on others. And that's one of the reasons why I think we have to be much more energetic and I might say much more innovative about the way we position ourselves in the region diplomatically. <coughs> and I also think we have to be much more imaginative and much more energetic about the way we build the armed forces which will constitute for us the final arbiter of how, hardly, how hard we can be pushed around, which is what my recent book's about. One final segment before we go to questions. John, uh, you're obviously very confident about American staying power in the region. That was self-evident from your talk. But you didn't mention soft power. What about soft power? What about American soft power in <coughs> the Trump era? I'll make two points. I think that um, since... Uh, I've been studying American foreign policy. Uh, American soft power has been one of our great virtues. Uh, I think that the coming of Donald Trump and the Trump administration more generally has done quite a bit to damage 
our soft power. Uh, and I think this is regrettable, and I hope the situation changes. Uh, my second point is, I think the Chinese are not good at soft power at all. Uh, and the one thing the Americans have going for them these days, even though President Trump is kind of a blunderpuss when it comes to <laughs> soft power, is the <laughs> fact that the Chinese seem worse than him. Uh, and I think moving forward, from an American perspective, it would help a lot if we had a president or an administration that paid serious attention to soft power as well as hard power. Yeah, what about that point, uh, Hugh Watt, about uh, China's soft power? I mean, America, notwithstanding the um, controversies of the Trump administration, uh, China, I mean, America has pretty a lot of so soft power, if you like, and it's exported it a lot over the world, especially in the post-war era. China's soft power. Yeah, look, I'm a, I just put me down as a skeptic about soft power. Generally. <laughs> Gen generally. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I forget the books, but I've just never seen where it actually makes a difference to the way states behave when the, ch when the chips are down. Mm. Sure, I prefer American movies to Chinese <laughs> movies. And sure, I prefer the American constitution to the Chinese constitution. I mean, that's it being a bit flippant. I mean, a, a, America is a country that I admire enormously in a million different ways. There are things I admire about China too, but fewer. But I don't think in the end that is going to determine how countries are going to align in, in the contest that we're seeing at the moment. And I'm much less confident than John is, I think, mm. that other countries in Asia, the Japans, uh, the Indias, the Singapores, the South Koreas or the Australias, are going to align with the United States and when they decide to or not is not going to be influenced much by what normally called soft power. Okay. I would just say, yep. Tom, this is the first time I've ever been on a panel in my life where I was defending soft power. I'm going to take that as a bit of a compliment. <laughs> that's, 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 and we should stress that today John Mishime gave a lecture at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which was well received and he was called Mr. Hard Power. Please, <laughs> please don't let that get outside. Yeah. <laughs> The secret is safe with us. Okay, now it's time for Q&A, and our first question comes from Peter Varghese, the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Peter. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tom, and to John and Hugh. Thank you for a characteristically erudite and articulate and almost persuasive set of You're so describing you, right? <laughs> so I just want to explore the space between um, balancing China and containing China, there's a lot of colour and movement in American policy making at the moment, uh, but I'm not sure we know where the settling point actually will be, and I'd be interested in your views on this. So Australia has adopted a position of engage and balance, and part of that is a judgement that we can't stop China's growth, but we may be able to constrain <coughs> its behaviour through building up a balance of power, United States, Japan, India, Australia, maybe one or two others, uh, which would mean that China didn't have carte blanche in its behavior. The United States has strayed from engagement, but in my view has yet to fully embrace containment, <coughs> although I think both Hugh and John spoke of a containment policy. 
If the United States goes all the way to full-blown containment, by which I mean the decoupling of the US and the Chinese economies, the bifurcating of global supply chains, and the proposition that anything you do which strengthens the Chinese economy is contrary to core strategic interests, is that the point at which Australia and our ally part ways? Because it will, in my view, be quite an unacceptable policy framework for Australia to have to follow. Well, um, <clears throat> very good question. Of course, I, I, I'm not quite sure I buy your characterization of Australian policy, because I think, uh, I think you characterised it as something in balance, engage in balance. I think Australia's uh, policy has been engage and pretend, and that is pretend that China is not really a serious strategic rival of the United States. I don't believe any Australian government has ever articulated a clear policy in which we envisage a new order in Asia in which the US and China have a more equal and more balanced relationship. And I say that because that's a position that I have been arguing for, which I've never received any support from anyone in the Australian government for. Mm. Um, so I think the foundation of Australian policy has been that we would hope the United States would contain China and therefore allow us, China would back off from its challenge and would allow us to continue to rely on China to keep, make us rich in America to keep us safe. Uh, the second point is I'm not sure I share your characterisation of the US policy. Um, I think I, I agree there's a lot of colour and movement in the United States policy at the moment. On the one hand we see coming out of the foreign policy establishment a very uh, clear um, suggestion, I'm not going to use a stronger word than that because I don't think it's yet a policy really, uh, of, which I think is containment. And I mean it's not, it's not a coincidence that the phrase the new Cold War has received such prominence in the way in which that's discussed. And if you look at the language for example well used by Pompeo and co uh, in Sydney, uh, the Big Pence speech uh, at the Hudson Institute uh, in October last year, this, this, is, this looks to me like a containment policy. And if that is what the United States pursues, as I said, I think it'll be extraordinarily hard for Australia to follow it. I also think it will be disastrous because, unlike John, I don't think it's going to work. And I think it is likely to lead uh, to, A, a very divided Asia, but B, a high chance of a catastrophic, a catastrophic war. <coughs> so I think that there, there is a place for Australia to, to change its policy, to argue to the United States that it should adopt a balance model. But I think that's not something we've done yet and I think it's going to prove to be extremely hard to sell that to the United States. I've, I, I can tell you from personal experience, if you stand up in a, in a seminar room in Washington DC and say that the United States needs to treat China as an equal, you get look gasps of disbelief or thrown to, thrown, shown the door uh, this is not just not just something I think that's on that's on an American political spectrum, and I think in a way, you know, John's flashy uh, presentation of American strategic psychology demonstrated that. Mm. And so I think it's much more likely the United States will either try and contain or withdraw. Mm. And I think because I don't think it's serious about containment, I think it is likely to withdraw, which is why I think we have to 
think how we can manage that. John Mishama. Yeah, I, I think that engagement and containment are two mutually incompatible strategies. And what we, <coughs> you did, up until 2017 was pursue engagement and not containment. After Trump was elected and came into the White House and got his sea legs, he abandoned engagement and he moved to containment. And in fact, as I said in my comments, it's more than just containment, it's actually rollback as well. Australia, on the other hand, doesn't want to engage in containment. You want your cake and eat it too. And you want to continue to engage with China. And your basic view is if you're unhappy with the United States, because the United States is now addicted to containment, well, you'll part ways with the United States and you'll side with China against us. And as I made clear before, good luck. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. And please identify yourself before you ask the question. Thanks so much. My name is Joseph. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at the Australian National University College of Law. Uh, I frame my questions from the Chinese perspective. From the Chinese perspective. Now, our, our Prime Minister, the Australian Prime Minister, recently um, uh, stated that, um, and I quote, the US is our friend, China our customer. For the Chinese, such a statement is deeply offensive. Why? Because they consider their customers their friends too. My question is, do you think it is wise for Australia to take an unfriendly position against China, given that its yearly GDP growth is equivalent to Australian economy in its entirety and uh, its future significant influence in the world economy? Yeah. Okay. Now, we know Hugh White's uh, answer to that, I think it's fair to say, Hugh, we've got to go through a few questions. John. <laughs> well, I, I just don't think that it makes sense to even <coughs> worry about language involving friends and customers, right? The question Australia has to ask itself is, does it make sense to side with the United States in a containment policy? You'll still continue to trade with China but the terms of those deals will change because the Chinese are gonna be really angry with the Australians. But this is really what it's all about. You know, in talking about customers and friends and so forth and so on, it doesn't mean much in my mind. The Australians and the Americans, in my opinion, are gonna to come together, not because they're friends, not because they have the same values. I mean, that will matter a bit. The reason that Australia is gonna side with the Americans is because it's in your interest. And it's in our interest to have you on our side. And it's not in your interest to be on the side of the Chinese against the Americans. Next question. Uh, hello, my name's Kyle, I'm from the Australian Public Service. Uh, for a long time, the Australian government had us cake and eaten it too, um, dealing with both China for economic reasons and the US for military reasons. Um, for how long can this continue? And at what point is Australia going to have a, to make a decision? And John, you've answered this, Hugh, who will Australia choose? Hugh White. Uh, well, um, it's ended now. I mean, I would say it ended some time ago, but like the proverbial cartoon character running off the cliff, um, Australian governments of both political persuasions have kept on saying we don't have to choose long after they started to make the choice. And we have been making choices. 
So far, our choice has been to try and um, play both sides against the middle. Um, I don't know how they're going to resolve it down the track. Um, uh, I, uh, you can, if you, if you ask people in Canberra, they'll say that the aim is to continue to walk this narrow path, um, avoiding the choice that we've been trying to avoid for so long. But when, for example, the United States comes and gives the kind of very stark presentation that we saw last weekend, or sort of language we've seen out of Beijing, um, that makes it very difficult. So the answer, my answer to you is, that depends on how hard we're pressed from both sides. In, in the end, we, we will make no more choices than our two primary partners impose on us. And the, and the tougher they, the, the more strongly they impose on us, the, 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 the starker the choices will have to be. I, I, but for what it's worth, I, I don't know how we're going to go, but I think we're going to end up deciding, for the reasons that I spelled out there, that siding with America in a containment policy against China is not just bad for us economically, but it's bad strategically because it's not going to work. So you think we're going to, that Australia is going to side with China? No, no. There's a, all the difference in the, no, it's a very important point though. Very, all the difference in the world between siding with China and not siding with America. Now, I know... Who, who, I, who are you going to side with? <laughs> God? <laughs> We'll side with ourselves. That's the point. That's the whole point of the story. But you said that the United States and China will both put tremendous pressure yes, on yes, you to pick sides. Yes. And you think you can avoid picking sides? Oh, yes, I think we can. But, but the other thing, remember, the core of my argument is I think the United States is going to bug out. The big difference between us okay. is that I think the United States is going to withdraw. And so it's not a question as to whether we choose to side with China. It's a question as to whether we can depend on the United States to play a significant strategic role in Asia. I don't think we can, okay. I'm much more pessimistic about US Moving right along, next question. Okay. Identify <laughs> yourself. My name's Chris Thompson. I'm a uh, student at the Australian Defence College. My question is for Professor Mearsheimer. Uh, you wrote some 15 years ago, and you've touched on it again this evening, that you're expecting at some stage some of China's neighbours to form a balancing coalition, you know, countries like South Korea, Vietnam, India, Japan, Russia. That was 15 years ago, and it hasn't happened yet. What gives you such confidence that a balancing coalition might emerge in the future? This gets to one fundamental difference between me and you. You think that China right now is an incredibly powerful country, and I think it's nowhere near as powerful as he makes it out to be, but might be over time. <coughs> and the argument I would make is that we are early in the game. There's all sorts of evidence of the balancing coalition beginning to form. It, it's not like it's uh, completely absent. If you go home and you Google India-Japan relations, you see that the Indians and the Japanese have been doing all sorts of dealings with each other to deal with China. So it's beginning to form. And the Americans are out here. Pompeo was in Australia for exactly this reason. But my view is it's early in the game. And that's why you don't see a concrete balancing coalition in place yet. But I do believe it will form. Okay, following on from Chris's question though, um, <coughs> Thailand, which is one of the five US treaty allies, am I right in saying it's been buying Chinese submarines? So that can't give you much confidence, following on from Chris's question. Well, there are a number of other examples that make one nervous. If all you have to do is look at the Philippines and how the Philippines have been behaving towards Chinese, towards the Chinese. 
Uh, I mean, you want to understand that it was much easier for us to put together a balancing coalition uh, in Europe against the Soviet Union and even in Asia against the Soviet Union uh, because of the geography. In Europe, the forces were really concentrated in the center of Europe because the central front was what really mattered. And it was quite easy for us to put together NATO. And when we put together the alliance structure in Asia, it was not in East Asia, it was in Northeast <coughs> Asia. The two countries that mattered to us in the Cold War in Asia mainly were Japan and Korea, South Korea. Northeast Asia is what mattered. The problem that we face moving forward in terms of putting together a balancing coalition in Asia is that you have countries like India and Japan and Australia, and I believe ultimately Russia, that are spread out over great distances. And putting together that balancing coalition is going to require great skill. But what do we have? We have Donald Trump in power. And if anything, his dealings with allies, you know, leads to trouble, not good outcomes. So the United States is going to have to, you know, up its game greatly to mm -hmm. put together a balancing coalition. Next question. Hi, I'm Ji Yan. I work in the Australian government. Uh, so what can the Australian uh, government do to help de-escalate tensions, the current tensions between the United States and China? Yeah, we've had a lot this week over the currency and the trade issue. What can Canberra do to uh, de-escalate, help de-escalate de tensions between Beijing and Washington? Hugh White. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. I mean, this is the, what drives, I mean, I, this, is, this is where we agree. You took the word, word, right <laughs> out of my mouth. I mean, you know, what drives escalating rivalry between the US and China is that the two strongest countries in the world are competing over who's going to be the primary power in the world's, world's most important region. This is as big as power politics gets. And the idea that there's somehow just a little bit of a, you know, I mean, I'm not disrespecting your question, it's a perfectly good question, but the, but the idea that some sort of little diplomatic manoeuvre we can do which somehow, you know, it's all just a misunderstanding. No, no. The point is, it's not a misunderstanding. They understand one another perfectly. I, I would exactly agree with John's formulation of it. Each of them wants to be the primary regional power in East Asia, and that's just mutually exclusive. And so, no, we, 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 can't, we can't stop this happening. We're going to have to learn to manage it, and the debate is, <coughs> how best do we manage it? Next question, James Curran <coughs> from the University of Sydney. Thanks, Tom. It's a question more for John. I guess, uh, I think we're agreed that the United States will not define itself ever as a normal nation, right? The American exceptionalism flows through so freely through the bloodstream there. This is why Hugh White hasn't heard anyone talk about China as an equal in Washington. Uh, but if you think back to some of the challenges that, that, uh, that initiated or ignited great patriotic unity in the United States last century, and this one, Pearl Harbor, Sputnik, the Japanese challenge in the 1980s, and then 9-11, wouldn't you say that the challenges that could bring about that kind of unity again are much more subtle and multifaceted today? In other words, what I'm interested in is, what is the foundation for your optimism that America will mobilise to contain China? If they won't define themselves as a normal nation, are we going to see more a process, a gradual process, of exceptional normalisation in America? <laughs> and are we seeing a certain hardening of the arteries in terms of American exceptionalism's power? Uh, just to be very clear, 
I don't believe America is an exceptional nation in any meaningful way, other than the fact it is the only regional hegemon in the world. I believe that virtually all powerful countries think they are exceptional. My experience going to China and talking to Chinese elites is that they think that they are exceptional, that they have a history, that they have a culture that makes them special. There's Chinese <coughs> exceptionalism. I don't believe in this sort of thing. But nevertheless, it is very important for elites to talk about exceptionalism for the purpose of mobilizing the masses to support foreign adventures. And what is going to happen here, this is embellishing on my earlier points about public opinion, is that the elites in Washington and New York will go to enormous lengths to portray the Chinese as the greatest threat the world has ever seen. And they will say that we are weak and we are vulnerable and we have to do X and we have to do Y. And they will play the exceptionalism card like you wouldn't believe for purposes of mobilizing public opinion. And this is one of the reasons I don't think there's any reason to worry about America's <laughs> staying power from the perspective of the public. It's easy to manipulate the public with all of these ideas like exceptionalism. Okay, well, let me put to you, John, uh, Robert Gates, the former Defence Secretary in the Obama and the Bush administration. He says, quote, I think the greatest national security threat to this country, America, at this point, is the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. Now, to the extent that those <laughs> attitudes prevail, to the extent that those attitudes prevail, doesn't that undermine a regional confidence in American staying power? But I think that you have to distinguish between foreign policy and domestic politics. There's no question that there's a huge red-blue divide that you've all heard about inside the United States, but it applies mainly to domestic politics. It doesn't apply to foreign policy. It's not like the uh, foreign policy of liberal hegemony that we pursued from 1990 up to 2017 was a Democratic Party policy or it was a Republican Party policy. Both administrations pursued the policy. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party is Tweedledee and Tweedledum when it comes to American foreign policy. And Donald Trump, you want to remember, he ran against that foreign policy in the Republican primaries where he swept the table, and then he ran on that platform against Hillary Clinton, where he defeated her. He was arguing that the foreign policy that both the Republicans and the Democrats had supported, liberal hegemony, was bankrupt. We had a consensus, and we're going to have a consensus on China, in large part because it's not just the military-industrial complex that wants to get in China's face, it's also the high-tech industry. You cannot underestimate the importance of that basic fact. The Chinese, a number of years ago, came out with this blueprint called China 2025. And they said that when 
2025 comes around, we are going to dominate things like telecommunications, artificial intelligence, and so forth and so on. This scared the living bejesus out of Silicon Valley. The high-tech people understood this would be disastrous for them. Furthermore, this has huge national security consequences. It's imperative that we, the United States of America, be on the cutting edge, not the Chinese, of all the leading technologies in the world. So we have this entire high-tech industry working arm-in-arm with the Pentagon to deal with China. Yeah, it's an interesting observation because in Australia, the business community is broadly united, but you're saying in the business community in America, they're divided over this question. Yeah, well, in, in the United States, the finance people want to do deals with the Chinese. So the finance people are not heavily in favor of containment. And here in Australia, you have a huge finance community and not much of a high-tech community. And not surprisingly, those people in finance want to do deals okay. with the Chinese. Next question. Hi, John and Hugh. Uh, I'm an international security student at the ANU, and my question is for John. Uh, you made it very clear where you stand on Australia and being neutral in this, in this topic. But in your words, Australia would still be in bed with China. But isn't that what we're sort of doing at the moment? So what's to say that like the US, that we're already not one of the enemies of the US, as you said, um, and that with <coughs> a snap of, the snap of their fingers, they won't turn on us, and that we shouldn't at all entertain the idea of um, of standing alone. I'm not sure what the question is. You're saying that what is Australia's position today? Um, my question is more that, like, insta like as you said, if we are to be neutral, um, that we would still be in bed with China. Yes. But isn't that what we're sort of doing because we engage so much yeah. in yeah, trade well, with well, China? Yeah, yeah <coughs> this economic interdependency that we have now will more likely continue. And to the extent that it does continue, doesn't that mean that eventually we'll move closer to the strategic orbit? China. The United States is going to force you to <laughs> choose sides, and the Chinese are going to force you to choose sides. You, you can't, my, this is my argument, you can't remain neutral. You, you, I, I fully understand that what Australia would like to do is maintain the status quo forever. And the last thing that China, excuse me, that Australia wants to do is get caught in the middle of a security competition between two gorillas. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. But my point is, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Okay. You're going to be forced to choose. And I believe that Australia, wisely from its point of view, will side with the Americans. And I want to be clear here, this doesn't mean there's then going to be no more trade between Australia and China. That's not going to happen. There will be continued trade but it won't be under the same conditions and it won't you know, involve the same volume that it has up to now in all likelihood. I've got time for one more question at least. Uh, Chris Yulman from the Nine newspapers. Uh, <coughs> thanks both of you for this evening. I just want to question something which Tom raised, um, raised briefly and that is there is a different front in this war and that's the home front. And we have seen and documented over a long period of time now foreign interference inside Australia's borders. It goes across the academic institutions, across the political institutions. Uh, and, and it affects very largely the Chinese diaspora in Australia. We have one million Australian Chinese citizens. So when you're talking about this international strategic com competition, 
What does Australia do and the United States do on the home front? Hugh White. Um, <clears throat> well, the first thing to recognise is, in my opinion, is to recognise that the one million Chinese of Australians of Chinese extraction are a massive asset to Australia in managing our trajectory in the Asian century. And one of the things we can get wrong is to not recognise that. The second point to recognise, and here I think John and I might agree, is that sure, China is going to throw its weight around. It's throwing its weight around already. That's what great powers do. We don't want to be too amazed and surprised that a country of China's weight and ambition starts trying to influence Australian politics. Of course it does. The third thing is I think we need to be a bit realistic about the means it uses. Most of the intention and anxiety that's been expressed in Australia over the last couple of years has been about the idea of covert Chinese influence. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but the idea that the best way the Chinese can find to influence Australian politics is to pay relative that the legal fees of relatively insignificant Australian parliamentarians rather than to ring up the Prime Minister's office. Is, it seems to me to be fanciful. The real factor is China is going to be incredibly influential over Australia because it's going to be the most powerful country in our region. We're going to have to learn how to manage that. And that is a real challenge because for a long time we've had the luxury of thinking and knowing that the world around us, the Asia around us, has been framed and made safe and congenial for us by American power. My argument is we're not going to enjoy that in future, we're going to have to stand much more on our own and that means we're going to have to decide wh what boundaries we want, to, we want to draw around China's growing influence. We are going to need to draw those boundaries. I don't think we've done it very effectively so far, but we need to be realistic about the fact that um, where we draw those boundaries is going to cost us and we have to decide what cost we're prepared to pay. Final thoughts, John Mearsheimer. Yeah, I would just say, generally speaking, Great powers make a habit of interfering in the domestic <coughs> politics of middle-range powers and minor powers. And here you have a situation where China cares greatly about breaking up the balancing coalition that the United States is trying to put together. The Chinese are not fools. They understand what's happening here. The Chinese have a deep-seated interest in making sure that Australia does not side with the United States, and if anything, sides with China. <coughs> and one set of tools that they're going to use to achieve that goal is to interfere in the politics, the domestic politics of Australia. So. What is happening now is hardly surprising. The problem with the Chinese is that they're heavy-handed. They're not sophisticated at employing soft power. The United States, when it comes to dealing with most countries, is more adept at manipulating those other countries' domestic politics than China is. So I think what you can expect is more interference over time. And of course, this will lead to more pushback from Australia. And in the end, I believe it will lead to significant amounts of alienation <coughs> among the Australian people toward China. John, thank you, and thank you, Hugh. Now for the vote of thanks.
Uh, Anastasia Lynn is a Canadian actress based in New York. Uh, she's been a regular critic of the Chinese government and um, she writes regularly in many prestigious publications, most notably the Wall Street Journal. In 2015, she won the Miss Canada World title, beauty pageant, and uh, she spoke in harsh terms about the Chinese government's human rights record. In response, Beijing denied her a visa to compete in the world, Miss World competitions in China of that year in 2015. Within days, she was a front page story in the New York Times. She received many favorable editorial treatment in the Washington Post, and there were several feature articles in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Anastasia Lin is the CIS uh, 2019 Scholar in Residence, and I'd like you all to welcome her to give the vote of thanks. <coughs> Thank you, Tom. As the great 19th century liberal John Stuart Mills once said, he who knows only his own position knows little of that. Tonight, we have witnessed two intellectual heavyweights fascinating exchange on this question that is crucial to determining Australia's future. We heard powerfully and coherently from Professor John Mearsheimer why Australia, why it is in Australia's survival interest to side with the United States, and from Professor Hugh White, why Australia has a choice in the struggle between the two giants. Now, as someone who has lived under that authoritarian regime and whose family continue to suffer because I've exercised my right of uh, freedom of speech as a Canadian citizen, I would like to remind everyone that the exchange we have seen tonight for Chinese people for people in that world, it is a luxury, and it is a freedom that is worthy of being, dis of being preserved. On behalf of CIS, I'd like to thank both of you for coming here tonight to provide this fascinating exchange. And here's a question for the audience. Would you like to see CIS hosting more events like this in Canberra in the future? Yes? <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> In this increasingly polarizing time, it is important for organizations like the CIS to provide a safe space for the rigorous exchange of ideas. Thank you for being here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you all. John, Thank you, Hugh. And just finally, can I say on behalf of CIS, it's been a pleasure being here in Canberra. We will be back. And if you'd like to be a member, I think there are, there are forms to fill out if you're interested, <coughs> and you can always see our, uh, our uh, videos online. Uh, I'm Tom Switzer from the Centre for Independent Studies. Again, thank John Mearsheimer and Hugh White, and thanks to all of you. <laughs> <laughs>